You might be surprised to know that endometrial cancer is the fourth most common in women. And despite having rising incidence and mortality, just doesn't receive the funding of similar cancers, with hysterectomy often the first-line treatment and few approved drugs. So our researchers wanted better options for women, and they carried out advanced analyses to reveal the genetic underpinnings of the disease. Associate Professors Tracy O'Mara and Dylan Glubb have leveraged these important findings and acquired funding from the US Department of Defence to unearth new drug targets to change those outcomes. This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. Hi, I'm Claire Blake, and you're listening to Body Lab. Those researchers are Associate Professors Tracy O'Mara and Dylan Glubb, who join me now. And Tracy, first, there can be confusion between endometriosis and endometrial cancer. I guess it makes sense. Endometriosis and endometrial cancer are you know, affect the same cells, but endometriosis is not a cancerous disease. Um, it's where the endometrial cells have travelled out of the uterus and have planted themselves elsewhere. More in younger reproductive age women, endometrial cancer is where you have the thickening of the uterus and a tumour growth that's actually inside the uterus. Generally affects women that are menopausal, sort of postmenopausal age. Although I think Something that is interesting and and kind of scary, actually, is that every year since 1990, the number of women being diagnosed before menopause has been rising. We know that endometrial cancer is strongly um, associated with obesity, but that doesn't explain everything. I think, you know, doing these sorts of things is really important for us because it's a cancer that's not talked about. And considering it's the fourth most commonly diagnosed, the fact that people don't even know that it exists is really scary. And when you have the numbers rising all the time and people at a younger age that are getting it, as I said, it's really scary. Given it isn't well known, how did you both end up in this area of research? Um, I was in a different lab on the same floor as Tracy, um, doing sort of similar work with breast cancer. And an opportunity came up in Tracy's lab to work in endometrial cancer. So I moved myself sideways into there. But the thing was, um, which was really great for this research is we lead, or Tracy leads, the largest genetic study of endometrial cancer in the world. So we have this unique access to this data that no one else does. And especially as we're finding new things as well, we um, you know, the first ones to find all these new regions in the genome which affect your risk of endometrial cancer. Um, we're putting together some new work, which hopefully we'll publish next year, but we've basically doubled, I think, the number of regions in the genome which we find are important for endometrial cancer. And Tracy, your pathway here? Yeah, so I was working in prostate cancer and ovarian cancer, so other cancers that are sort of influenced by hormones, reproductive organs, and I got into contact with Mandy Spurtle here at QIMR, and she had just been funded for a large population-based study of endometrial cancer because it was something that wasn't really researched, and so it was this new area that she could move into. She'd just started this study. It was um, called the Australian National Endometrial Cancer, her and Penny Webb, and it was a very successful study and the samples are still being used now and still have lots of interest for endometrial cancer researchers. Joined her lab as a yeah, visiting scientist during my PhD. The field of genome-wide association studies opened up and large consortia and so I just managed to be in the right place at the right time I think and sort of get these networks in place. Okay so how is endometrial cancer normally diagnosed? 
There's no screening. The most common symptom is postmenopausal bleeding. And so 90% of people that have endometrial cancer will have postmenopausal bleeding. But out of everyone that has postmenopausal bleeding, only 10% of them will have endometrial cancer. You know, that sort of tells you that there's 10% of women that are, don't have that symptom and that miss that way of being diagnosed, I guess. And as I was saying before, there are, you know, it's growing numbers of people being diagnosed before menopause as well. So finding those when that's not clearly going to be a symptom because you haven't been through menopause yet. So is there a genetic component? So there are rare high risk genes similar to the BRCA1, BRCA2 genes. So for endometrial cancer as part of a syndrome called Lynch syndrome, these are rare genetic variants that are found in the mismatch repair genes. They only make up about 3 to 5% of the cases, but that syndrome also associates with colorectal cancer and pancreatic cancer. But otherwise, I don't think... Again, we're geneticists, so I tend to approach things from a genetic viewpoint. <laughs> and we know from this, the studies that or analyses that Tracy's done that across the genome we find that endometrial cancer is genetically correlated with breast cancer and I think ovarian, and ovarian cancer. cancer as well. So yeah. there are some of the same underpinnings, but it is obviously quite a different disease and genetically there's a lot of unique features to it. If it isn't found through that postmenopausal bleeding, do we pick it up later? Yeah, well, that would be right. That's the issue. If you're not diagnosed through the abnormal postmenopausal bleeding, then yeah, you're more likely to be diagnosed at a later stage and you'll have worse outcomes because of that. The survival rate, I guess, similar to lots of other cancers, if the later you're diagnosed, the, the worse the prognosis. And first line treatment is still hysterectomy. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it sounds so callous to say, oh, you just have a hysterectomy. And you know, really without taking into account the fact that that's, for one thing, it's it's a major operation to have that removed and, and all of the, the repercussions and everything that you have to deal with afterwards, but also there's that psychological association around, you know, talking to some, some patient advocates and saying that that was actually quite a big deal to them to have, you know, have that hysterectomy and have that piece of them removed yeah well, and especially for women who are still wanting to you know are fertile and want to have children then that's a major issue if they have to be treated through hysterectomy so there is a need for other treatments to avoid that what are the survival rates at present in australia it's about after five years 83 percent of women after their diagnosis will be still alive but that still means that one in about one in five women will die within five years of their diagnosis and it's actually worse than breast cancer so while it's generally considered to be inverted commas a good cancer it's still lots of women are still dying from it and yeah. and have long associated sort of adverse outcomes through you know the hysterectomy and other sort of yeah. related It's actually um, one of only two <coughs> cancers that affect women that are predicted to have rising mortality rates as well over the next 20 years. The whole thought of it being a good cancer is, you know, we really need to change that mindset. Is it a particularly aggressive cancer in terms of spreading? Even with, you know, a cancer like endometrial cancer, there's so, they're quite, well, at least there are quite a few different subtypes of it. There's, the major subtype is sort of considered, again, to be a good one in terms of outcome. But again, about 20% of the subtypes are aggressive 
cancers and which will be diagnosed at a later stage and have worse outcomes. So, And sometimes it's hard to know which ones they are. So they'll present looking like they're a cancer subtype that, you know, should have a good prognosis and then they, they recur. They, they don't have good outcomes. And so trying to work out which ones they are is not so straightforward. What was the aim of the study? Our main aim in our group is really to find genetic variants that associate with the risk of endometrial cancer. And so one of the ways that you can do this is doing these large-scale genetic studies. And the larger they are, the more likely that you'll find these genetic variants. That costs a lot of money. And so one of the ways that you can improve your ability to find genetic variants without maybe spending as much money is to include information from other risk factors along with yours. So that's the type of analysis that we did. So the first thing we did was try to find out, well, which are the risk factors that are important for endometrial cancer? Really try to use genetic techniques to tease this apart and find out which are the ones that are independently affecting the risk. And so we did this and we found five independent risk factors. So there was BMI, waist circumference, earlier age of menarche, later onset of menopause, testosterone levels, so increasing levels of testosterone and decreasing levels of sex hormone binding globulin, which they're kind of related to each other. And so once we had those, and it was really interesting because we know that BMI is important, but we also know that BMI can be related to these hormone levels, but to see that they came through as being independently associated with endometrial cancer, that was interesting to us because it's not just that those are being modified from BMI and that's why you see this relationship with them, but maybe they're actually performing other roles in, in increasing your risk of endometrial cancer. So yeah, we then ran a, a genetic analysis, including all that information together, and we found a particular region of the genome that strongly associated with endometrial cancer risk, and it looks like that's being mediated through that testosterone exposure. And the gene that at that locus, which seems to be the gene which is involved, is a gene which metabolizes testosterone. So it all seems to fit together that testosterone is mediating endometrial cancer risk in this case and through these genetic variants. That testosterone is an exciting find, something you can manipulate, I guess. Yeah, so there's anti-androgenic drugs that are being used for, you know, being developed, I guess, originally for prostate cancer. And so there's a clinical trial that's being run in the US where they are treating women with advanced endometrial cancer with these types of drugs to see if they can improve their survival. And so we're looking forward to seeing what those results are like next year. Now, to get funding is a miracle, but from the U.S. Defence Department, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, so... <laughs> that was really exciting. Dylan didn't believe me when I said that we had been successful. <laughs> so well, I guess that part of the thing, it's, it's really hard to get funding at the moment. Grant funding bodies will fund 10% of the grant applications which you know are sent to them, so... You're used to getting rejected all the time and, you know, you have these ideas and, you know, you think they make sense and they'd be good things to do. But, yeah, it's hard when a lot of the people have good ideas as well. So, yeah, it's really, really exciting to get this application approved for funding. And it's a whole new avenue of research for us, which is really exciting. We've hired people with new skills and brought them in. So it's really expanding the scope of what we can do. The 
major basis of the project is to establish these endometrial organoids, 3D tumours or 3D tissue things in it, models in a dish, and they better represent what the endometrial tissue is actually like. So there's organoids from uh, normal tissue as well as from different types of tumours, so representing different subtypes of endometrial cancer. So it's really exciting because previously we've been using these cell lines and so they just grow flat on a plastic dish and obviously they can tell us something about the cancer but clearly our cells don't grow flat on a plastic dish so there's a lot of stuff that we can miss. Um, Having these models are really important to continue our research. I know here in the building we have brain organoids, heart organoids. Who came up with endometrial Organoids. I'm not exactly sure who was the first person, but we've got a collaborator in Belgium who published this really exciting paper a couple of years ago, and we read it and thought, well, this sounds great. This is what we should be doing. So we contacted him, um, I think it was during COVID, and he was keen to collaborate and send out the organoids from his group. So, yeah, we've got them in the lab now. They're growing. So it's exciting to be able to do this. Yeah, it was really exciting. So our postdoc who we've hired to culture these, she was really excited. She sent us photos of them yesterday (laughs) to say that, you know, they're all in the dish and and growing. You can take sort of normal tissue and sort of keep it alive for a a few days or but then they just die. So this is really great that you can continually sort of use these systems for an extended period of time. And what are you hoping the organoids will show you? The thing with DNA is that as a geneticist, you don't really think about what I didn't until the last several years. Is It's not just a linear molecule in two dimensions. It's actually a three-dimensional molecule, which sort of loops around on to itself. And then that means different parts of genes can interact with different parts of DNA. And that's, that's how you get all this sort of complicated regulation. So that's one of the um, techniques we'll be using to look at is how the sort of DNA is organised, what genes are interacting with what sort of elements and are those elements and genes important for endometrial cancer. So we're really taking a deep dive into the DNA and the genome and trying to use that information to help us understand our genetic findings. Yeah, because I guess if you think about it, if you lined up all the DNA that you have in every cell that you have in your body, then I think they can go around the solar system twice or more than that, actually. So you think you've got all that inside your body all squished together. It's a really complicated picture. So every cell has things organised in different ways. By looking at these organoids, we'll have a really good idea or at least a much better idea on how the DNA is organised in endometrial tumours specifically. And so we can explore our genetic findings and it can help us identify what are the genes that are important, what happens if they're up or if they're down. And then that can help us pinpoint, well, if we were to treat these with drugs that might affect the expression of these genes, Is that something that we could then use for a therapeutic reason? There's been so many different studies consistently showing drugs that have a genetic basis are more likely to be successful in clinic. Exploring this from that genetic point of view, we're hoping that what we find is more likely to be able to go to clinic for patients to be treated. Well, the other thing too is the FDA in America have just, I think in the last year or so, said they will now approve drugs which haven't been tested in animals but have been tested in organoids. So there's a real push Mm. towards getting away from using animals 
and to use organoids actually to guide drug development and drug approval. So, yeah, we definitely um, see this as an area that we want to get into. Because it better mimics our biology. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, because you think it has a human genetic background. That's one of the reasons why. Yeah, and of course, someone listening to this might really want to know how long this could take. Well, we're hoping there's a two-year grant. At the end of the two years, that we'll have some idea of some potential targets for drug development. In some cases, you might find that that target already has a drug which is used maybe for another disease. So you, you can do a thing which is called repurposing. So you take that drug and you then use it to treat the different disease. So that really speeds up the development of drugs because you don't have to go through all the different a lot of stages. You can sort of skip. You know what the safety profile of the drug is. Um, so you can skip some of the clinical trials. But uh, drug development in general is a long process. So it will take, you know, if you have to develop a drug, then that's going to take a few years and you have to go through all the different stages of clinical trials, which, so you can be looking at up to 10 years when you're starting sort of from yeah. scratch. Which I guess is then why knowing that that success rate is higher for those that have a genetic background is really useful because a lot of the expense in in drug trials is because of failure and it is such a long process so starting just you know with that sort of a little bit of a step up to say well we know that this is more likely to be successful then that gives you just a bit more of an edge than than something else. The US military are funding breast cancer and lots of other women's diseases of late that's great. It makes a big difference to their active service members, not just to the member that has a particular disease, but if any of their family members do, it takes them out of their unit. It causes a lot of disruption to the service unit. That's part of the reason why they fund these sorts of things. I think there's a lot of research done into what particular diseases they will fund based on what's affecting their their service members and, and family. Until a couple of years ago, they weren't funding endometrial cancer research. So we'd been keeping a, a bit of an eye on this grant funding sort of source and we couldn't apply for it until a couple of years ago when they decided, yes, they will fund endometrial cancer research now. Yeah. There are lots of great and well-resourced research facilities in the US. Uh, impressive that they picked you. I guess we punch a bit of above our weight um, because QIMR has been quite successful at these different programs and you know it really says a lot about some of the ideas that people have here and also because it's not just about the idea but it's also showing that there's that feasibility and there's some track record there and it really I think it says a lot. This funding will go part of the way but of course more funding is needed to get to the treatment so please if you'd like to donate or if you'd like to find out more about Associate Professor Tracy O'Mara and Associate Professor Dylan Glove. QIMRBerghoffer.edu.au